So Borderlands is an event that we do on the second Tuesday of every month. And we really um, try and create a space where we can have, we can use art and story and music and poetry to sort of come in at a different angle to some of the, the key issues in our society and between us in our communities that sometimes we don't necessarily talk about uh, and we don't necessarily talk about well enough. And uh, so we just try and find a space to provoke a better kind of discussion. And I hope you'll see something of that tonight. I hope you'll grasp something of that tonight. Um, just when we move on, I read this thing on Instagram today. It's where I get most of my wisdom from these days. It says Christmas. It's by a guy called Carlos Rodriguez, who, who runs this thing called The Happy Givers in Costa Rica. But um, he says Christmas is about a child in need receiving support from the wealthy. Christmas is about believing what a woman said about her sex life. Christmas is about a family finding safety as refugees. Christmas is about God identifying with the marginalized, not the powerful. Christmas is a time for hope. So that's the theme of this evening. And I'd like to invite Andy McLenahan, who has written an original song for tonight, which I'm very excited about. And uh, he's got some, some, some songs for us to get us kicked off. So thank you, and uh, God bless us all. Too great to wash away when all that I can be. 
25 years since I lost myself 25 years with a wind Pitching my tents under ragged skies Bracing for the next monsoon Well, the rains came and I'm still here But the soil got washed out And if we want to grow anything time we picked up and moved about hold on my son if you just knew how much you love take heart stay strong and let the hope in as a flood and hold on my son if you just knew how much you love take heart stay strong young blood Got those deep roots, the fear of man Till the soil plant you seed Well, I'm not giving up easily Work until my hands blister and bleed No correction, it's good enough No, it's better than that Loose my tongue, say it's wonderful Drop the caution, diplomats hold on my son, if you just knew how much you're loved, take heart, stay strong, and let the hope in as a flood. And hold on, my son, if you just knew how much you love, take heart, stay strong, young blood. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Andy McLennan. Let's give a big, another big round of applause. That's very good. On so many levels, that was absolutely brilliant, Andy. Thank you. Really good. Um, so uh, we're um, going to introduce our, our first speaker for the, for the night. He's a good friend of mine. He's somebody, the theme of, is hope. And there's a few people, I think, that um, symbolize hope to me. Uh, more than than Alan McBride. Alan uh, is featured in my documentary. His, uh, of course, his wife Sharon died in the Shankill bomb many years ago, and Alan since then has been a persistent and hopeful activist for uh, living in a Northern Ireland that we all want to live in. Uh, one of the things I love that I've heard Alan talk about on the radio and in person is where he talks about let's have a society of being a good neighbour. And he's brilliant on that. And Alan also is in the midst of compiling a book, as he might tell you, of a hundred stories of, of hopeful stories from the grassroots of people who live through the troubles. So please give a big warm welcome to the brilliant Alan McBride. Okay, so thank you. And thank you to Johnny for those kind words. Um, I suppose I wanted to introduce this book. It's actually called The Brighter Side of the Troubles. And uh, 
I know that many people would think that there was nothing bright about the Troubles, and that's right, there wasn't, in terms of the carnage and the death and the, um, the trauma and, and all of that that many of us lived through. But you know what, there was some remarkable acts of human kindness that happened as well. Uh, it kept us all sane, I guess. And this book is really about that. But it has its beginning way back in 2017, actually, when the assembly um, fell apart and I was left. Because for me, I was someone that had invested a lot of time and effort in the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement and all of the things that happened since then, in spite of the loss and the trauma. I just wanted a better world for my daughter and for now my granddaughter as well and for all of all of society and so when the assembly collapsed in 2017 I was um, I was really annoyed I was to be honest with you, I was totally pissed off and I got to thinking about why it had collapsed and I started to think about you know for me one of the big things that's been absent in our politics and in our society actually you could say is is, is a lack of kindness. Um, and I started to think about why the assembly collapsed and we all know about the, the heat thing with the pellets and farmers burning fuel and causes all the fortune and stuff. But as it moved on, um, it became about the Irish Language Act, as you know. And so on the 25th anniversary of the Shankle bomb, um, I was so pissed off that I actually wrote a letter to Arlene Foster and to Michelle O'Neill, just asking them to do something to get this society back together. And I sort of thought to myself, you know, if these guys could just really get involved and realise what it means to be kind and to be good neighbours, I think they could solve this issue in, in a flash. Because the issue was the Irish Language Act and... So I sort of thought that, you know, if, if Arlene Foster could reach out to Michelle O'Neill and if she could say to her, you know, Michelle, we really value you uh, and your people as good neighbours and we want to reach out to you. We want to um, show you that you're welcome here. Uh, and so we're going to put in place an Irish Language Act which is going to... You know, it, 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 it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it, it can't cost the earth because we've got the health service and we've got education to pay for and stuff, but we want to do something that's meaningful for you because we want you to feel valued. We want, to see, we want you to feel that you're part of us. We want you to feel that you know, you're at home here. And I imagine if Arlene Foster had done that, that Michelle O'Neill might well have responded by saying, well, you know what, Michelle? Um, I know that some loyalists and some unionists think that we're after your culture and your tradition and we want to take away your bonfires and your 12th of July parades and all of that. But we don't want to do that. You know, we want to actually, we want you guys to celebrate that because that's important to you. And so we're going to pass a, you know, a, a, an act that, that, that would basically, you know, protect your, your way of life, your culture, your tradition. I mean, that conversation obviously didn't take place. It never happened. Because, as so often is the case in Northern Ireland, uh, people want to um, have everything their own way. And there's that real lack of neighbourliness or being kind. And if our politicians would just grasp that, and it frustrates the life out of me that they don't, because I think it's, it's really simple. As someone who's lived a peaceful life most of my life, and you know, the, the, the ingredients in what makes that happen is, is not rocket science. Um, but that conversation never, ever took place. It got me to thinking about some of the stories in my own life, which, you know, made a big difference to me. And really, that's what this book is about. Uh, my colleague, uh, Eva Fearhoff is with us tonight. She's sitting down there. You can stand up, Eva. <laughs> okay. So this is a public appeal for any stories that you might have about human kindness that happened during the Troubles to talk to, to Eva. I've been commissioned by the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin to write this book. 
Um, I need a hundred stories, and at the moment I have about forty odd, so I'm I'm sexy short. Um, but to give you an example of the kind of stories that are in the book, um, so one of the stories is uh, way back uh, when Sharon was killed. So Sharon was killed in nineteen ninety three, and I was left alone with my daughter, who was uh, two years old at the time, and just me and her. And I don't know whether it's a bloke thing or what it is, but I could never do her hair. Just could never get it right, you know, um, as a father. So I could get it right actually when I took her to the bath and used that little stuff, you know, the spray stuff you put on it? Uh, no more tears. Tats, what is it? No more tears. No more tears or tats, whatever. Yeah, you spray that and it can't, it's magic, right? It's great. Um, and when I did that, I could I could do different things with her hair, but I could, I could never get it right. And particularly going to school, I could never get it right. And so anyway, one day, her school teacher, Mrs. Cairns, um, came to me uh, just before school started. And she said, Alan, could you come and see me after school? I want to talk to you about Zoe. And I sort of thought, oh my goodness, like my daughter was, what, six at the time? You know, what could she have done that, you know, that warrants a, you know, a, a summons to the, to, to the teacher's classroom to talk about. So I went and I, I didn't actually relax that whole day. I was wondering what, what could she be wanting to talk to me about. But when I got to the school, uh, to, the, to the classroom, she sat me down and she said, look, Alan, tell me this. Are you having problems with Zoe's hair? <laughs> and I thought, right. Um, and I just came clean. I said, yes, I am. I'm having major problems with it. I can't, I can't do it. You know, I can't get the pigtails and I can't do it. Plats, particularly there's a plaits of the way you kind of crisscross it and stuff and you kind of get it and you get a bubble on the end of it and when you get to the end of it it just all unraveled you know and so all I had to do was just brush her hair back and then put this bubble on her and, and send her out, out to school and so every day she went to school with the same you know the same hairstyle and Mrs Kern says look Alan I've noticed that you send Zoe to school every day pretty much with the same hair, hair, hairdo and she says you know she's a little girl she kind of has little girlfriends and she you know, she wants to, you know, she wants to be like everybody else. You know, she wants to have her own pigtails or plaits or all the rest of it. And he says, but I can't do it. She says, I know. She says, so I'll tell you what. She says, send her to school 10 minutes earlier in the morning. Put a bubble on her hairbrush in her bag and I'll do her hair for her. And she did her hair for the rest of the school year. And... In that moment for me, because school and teaching, and I think teachers, by the way, are, are amongst the most wonderful people in the world. I don't know if any in the room or not tonight. Um, but if you are, you're in a very privileged position of being able to encourage and to mould young lives. And, and that, that teacher, Mrs. Kearns, really got it. And it meant a hell of a lot to me because, and it was a very simple gesture because she knew that education was more than just reading and writing and all the skills. It was about other things as well. So that's a story that's in the book. Another story is, um, again, from my own experience, whenever I lost Sharon in 1993, I lived in a loyalist housing state. And after a couple of years, you know, when I got a bit stronger, I knew that I just wanted to move out and I wanted Zoe to know uh, little Catholic girls as well as little Protestant girls. So I moved into a mixed area um, in North Belfast and one eleventh, and, and so we got to know little girls across the street, little Catholic girls, and I got to know their parents, and we became great friends. And one eleventh night, and I have to say to you, I, uh, I love the 11th of July. I'm a Protestant I'm from a loyalist, unionist community. We, the bonfire was like Christmas Day for us. I collected for the bonfire. I built bonfires, and, and I haven't missed a bonfire um, in years. And so I was getting ready to go into bonfire when my, uh, these little girls across the street, their father called round to say that he would like to invite me to his house to a barbecue on the 11th of July. And I thought to myself, right. And I didn't even need to say it because he knew. And he said to me, listen, we know that you, you know, you go into bonfires. I thought it was a secret, but he knew, <laughs> you know. And he said, that's okay, because he knew that he didn't like them till like 10 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock at night or something. So he says, why don't you come first of all and to our house and you know have the have the have the barbecue and you know we could you know 
And I and, and Zoe was pulling at my trousers. She was saying, Daddy, because she didn't really want to go in the bonfires, you know, she wanted to go and play with her friends. So I said, right, okay, that's what we'll do. So we went over to their house and we, um, when I got to their house, I went in the back uh, and there it was, the barbecue. All our neighbours were there. There was beers, there was, you know, um, burgers on the on the grill. But what drew my attention was that in the middle of his garden, he'd built a small bonfire for me. No Irish flag, no uh, effigy of the Pope or of, you know, nationalist politicians. Um, it was just a simple bonfire. And as we uh, stood around that bonfire and we told jokes and we had a laugh and we had a few beers, and the sound of our children, little Catholic girls and little Protestant girls as they played in the garden. Um, and you know what? There's, there's nothing more beautiful than the sound of children laughing and, and playing. It's the most beautiful sound in the world. And I can remember coming out of that house that night and going down to Mount Vernon to the bonfire on the show road. And I watched as another Irish tricolour and as, you know, um, they sang their loyalist songs. And I just had a glimpse of what Northern Ireland could be like, you know, if people would only get over themselves and start to reach out to each other and, and, and to celebrate the fact that culture and tradition and, and stuff like that is not things that should tear us apart, that those things are things that actually should, um, you know, they're, they're things that we should mutually be able to enjoy. And I think that's the glimpse of Northern Ireland for me. So let me read this to you. A Brighter Side of the Troubles. As much as I would like to claim credit for the title of this book, I'm afraid I owe that honour to my time spent in South Africa when I came across a book entitled A Brighter Side of Apartheid. That book focused on stories of human kindness and compassion, black on white and white on black. It didn't deny the horrors of the apartheid system, but it went beyond that to find stories where humanity shone through despite the darkness. In our own situation, often it was stories of humanity and acts of human kindness that encouraged many to keep going when to give up would have been an easier option. People who chose to believe that peace was possible and that brighter days lay ahead. Trailblazers like Betty Williams and Maria Corrigan, who along with Kieran McCune founded the Peace People in 1976. I can still remember my elderly aunts Maggie and Violet doing a jig with Roman Catholic nuns on the Shankill Road in Belfast as the marchers for peace passed by North Hard Street. Or the small group of concerned parents who set up Lagan College in 1981 because they believed that their children were better off educated together than apart. I was privileged to be a guest speaker at Lagan's praise giving ceremony a few years ago and to see at first hand how an integrated school works and the contribution it was making to shared understanding and reconciliation. What about Jim Aiken? who kept live concerts going in Belfast at a time when the city was, had become an entertainment wasteland, with big acts afraid to come and people unwilling to venture out after dark. I recall those days when Belfast was surrounded by a ring of steel and people had to be searched to get into the city centre. Gentleman Jim, as he was affectionately known, kept Belfast alive and laid the foundations for the exciting nightlife that, and live music scene that we enjoy today. I could go on and talk about pioneers like Jerry Reynolds, Ray Davey, Kevin Mullen, David Armstrong, Nancy Gracie and Sally McCartan. But what about the others? Those whose stories are less well known except within the confines of their families and friendship circles. I'm not aware if it's a sign of getting old but a favourite pastime of mine is to wander into graveyard and to read the inscriptions on the gravestones. Here lies John a bastion of peace and tranquility. Or, in memory of Aunt Jane, all who knew her loved her. Or, how about, Esther was a giant amongst women. I have to confess to the last one being my favourite because I, most likely because it belongs to my mother and it just happens to be, I just happen to be the author. Now this book is not about epitaphs or documenting stories from the great and the good. It's not about my mother, or indeed John or Jane for that matter. But I'm intrigued as to what makes a woman a giant, or a man a bastion of peace. What is it about a person that it could be sincerely said that all who knew them loved them? Giants, peace builders and love creators. That is what this book is about, a brighter side of the troubles.
ordinary men and women of Ireland who refused to be consumed by hate and instead became role models for dealing with difference, standing up to the men and women of violence and showing us all that there was another way, a better way. Perhaps we will never know how much we as a society owe these champions of change. If any of you have a story, please come see Eva. But thank you for listening to me and my ramblings. Thank you, Ellen. I'd like to invite N Nalani up. Um, they're going to the old friends of ours. Well, young, young friends. Younger than... Old. That's it, younger than me. And uh, they're going to play for us. And also then later on they're going to bring Holly and Emily up uh, to dance for us. But uh, thank you guys for coming tonight. I'll clear some of this and you're welcome. Just 
Well, um, we are into the second half of this evening, and it's a, a real privilege to in, introduce our next guest, or not a guest, our next kind of reflector speaker. Um, I got a job with Corrie Mila about a year ago, and uh, one of the things I've loved about Corrie Mila is really respecting the people I work with and uh, working with people that are more intelligent than me and uh, know more and generally uh, brilliant. Um, one of those people is the program manager at Corimila for marginalization. Uh, Denise Bradley is a, a brilliant, intelligent soul uh, with a big heart who has spent a good number of years um, really, uh, really strongly advocating for those who are on the margins of society. Uh, she has a brilliant uh, resource that's just been released called Seed of Sequoia, which um, is brilliant reflections around uh, the themes of gender-based violence. Um, she's an activist and uh, she's getting a Master of Laws tomorrow. She's very intelligent uh, and brilliant. She's brilliant. Denise Bradley, everyone. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I have to perform now. Uh, thank you, Johnny. Um, you're very, very kind. Um, I'm really, I'm not that intelligent. I'm maybe just better at pretending I'm intelligent. But look, what a joy to be here this evening. Um, this is my first Borderlands event, um, and it's just such a gorgeous vibe. Um, thank you, thank you, Alan, thank you, musicians, thank you, dancers. Um, it's, it's just been gorgeous. So, yeah, as you heard from... Okay. So, yeah, so, so um, just before I start, I had said to Johnny, we've got this brilliant resource, um, that I have worked tirelessly on for, for about two years. COVID has held it up. Um, and I said, is there any opportunities to promote that, to, to gain some interest? And he said, yeah, yeah, we've got this event, Borderlands, come along. So I thought, yeah, well, I'll come along. And then I get an email to say, well, Denise, by the way, can you do a little bit on Mary? Can you do a little bit on Hope? Um, and this email just seemed to grow. So, so forgive me, be patient with the notes because it's to keep me on track. <laughs> I have 12 minutes, apparently. So, so yeah, as Johnny was saying, um, I have spent most of my career, most of my, my work life on the margins. Um, four years at Coromina, and then before that, about 15 to 20 years working with survivors of gender-based violence. Um, and really, that is spaces where people who suffer injustice, inequality, exploitation, live their lives, and live their lives daily. Um, they live on the edges of abundance. They lack resources. They often lack voices um, for their voices to be heard, um, and really for their, their experiences to be validated. So that's part of the work, um, is being alongside um, marginalised individuals and groups. And then I guess another part of that work would be, I suppose, shining a light, bringing visibility to the structures, to the systems that continue to compound that inequality, to collaborate um, comfortably with uh, discrimination. So it's, it's an easy job. But I suppose when we think about it, our, our world is hurting, and it, it, it's hurting everywhere. Um, but I suppose we're not bear, bearing witness to broken systems. And I want to be really clear about my thoughts behind this. Systems are not broken. They don't need fixed. I believe the establishments are no longer comfortably sustaining religious, gendered, ethnic, class division, uh, divisions, really. And, and people's voices are rising, people are starting to want to be heard. And I think what we're seeing is the comfortable are being disturbed. So it's lovely to, to see spaces like this starting to emerge. And working for Coromila, I suppose, one of the big things is it's a gathering place. It, it's a community of people who are courageous and passionate about stories and about sharing stories. Um, and often those stories are the use of Bible stories. Um, of holy texts to reflect upon issues of, of, of contemporary concerns and they're often still very relevant today um, and often I think coming to Coromilla it's that prophetic voice um, and it's a dreamer of, of new visions 
And, and really for me, we need new visions. We need new visions of being together. And, and where is it it says, without a vision, the people will perish. And I suppose it's always those on the edges. It's always those on the margins that will suffer greatest. So what I'm holding is really what you see. It's a vision. It's a vision of the seed of Sequoia. Um, and it was myself and the late Glenn Jordan. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there's some of you in the room know um, Glenn. And we had dreamt this vision. It was bringing uh, new ways of creating compassionate spaces, very much what Alan was speaking into, about spaces of kindness, about being together, starting to explore really difficult, painful issues in a way with compassion, with care, with kindness, not to affect guilt, not to affect shame or, or condemnation or judgment, but to find new ways of being together. And I suppose domestic and sexual violence is a huge political. It's civil, it's an economic, it's a social, it's a cultural uh, difficulty. It's a shadow pandemic. And I suppose it often stalks behind closed doors. A huge taboo in faith communities. And often it's a dark legacy for religious institutions. So if anybody's interested in the resource, get in contact with me. This is my little marketing now for, for, for Sudo Sequoia. But really what it does is it explores gender-based violence through the lens of the marginalised woman. It's using Bible stories. It's bringing back the, the impact, um, I suppose, for the marginalised woman and bringing it into to, to today's contemporary society. And I guess following Johnny's instruction, I do, I'm, not going, I'm going to allude to one Bible story, and now it's not contained in the seed of Sequoia, but I suppose it's relevant for this, this Christmas season. And it's looking at Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, and I suppose this story brings in new learnings um, and guidance for, for contemporary issues. So for me, when I think of Mary, mother of Jesus, I'm thinking, who is Mary? What set her apart as a woman to bear what the text says was the saviour of our world? And yet, for a woman, often there's little detail for me. There's de little detail has been preached from the pulpit on the details of her life. And often that's not uncommon for women. When we look at women in history, often they've been hidden, they've been silent, they've even been airbrushed out of history, out of holy texts. And I suppose when I look at what the evangelicals hold Mary as this meek and mild, good person, this good girl, a vehicle to, to, to bear Jesus, the, the virgin womb compliant. But then if we look on, I discovered something called the Magnificat. And I want you to indulge me as I read it to you now. And Mary said, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he took notice of this lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One is holy. And he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. And he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. And just a little bit on, it talks and says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months and then went back to her own house. Wow. <laughs> These are not the words, attitudes, character of a meek and mild teenage girl. I have lived the experience of being a pregnant teenager, a pregnant 19-year-old, and I would never have the courage to speak into my lived experience of judgment, let alone allude to the systems 
to dismantle systems. But I guess that's what made Mary special, set apart. So I suppose my reflection is that, that Mary is a political activist. She was a radical, courageous and passionate young woman who shone light, who brought visibility to religious and political structures and systems that are oppressing the marginalised. In fact, she was a fierce and prophetic voice on the edges. And then she goes to be with Elizabeth because the gossip, the discrimination towards an unmarried teenager would be cruel. In fact, she risked death by stoning. She needed a compassionate community. Zachariah was a high priest, so he and Elizabeth would have had that religious authority, that religious authority to use their power not to further oppress and marginalise, but to affirm, to care for this pregnant teenager, to influence a community to begin to offer a safer space. But I suppose new visions require more than safety. Much of my practice on the margins is facilitating, it's holding compassionate spaces. And that's the practice of being with others. It's not the fixing, it's not the rescuing, it's not what we think people need, it's not the perceived Western ideological, manufactured spaces that we all think people need, but holding spaces to be and share humanity. That requires courage. It requires humility. It requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice from us because we're all traumatized. And I think listening to Alan, that really reinforced to me the levels of trauma, the levels of pain that we still have in our own society and those that are now joining us. Because in compassionate spaces, those emotional, those spiritual wounds can be tended to and the suffering can be affirmed. Fear and fear of the other is dispelled and suddenly hope emerges. And for me, in all the years that I have held those spaces with huge amounts of trauma and fear, hope is the antidote to fear. I know it's my imagination, it's my interpretation, but, but something tells me Mary had been given a compassionate space and that was the supernatural visitation of Gabriel. There was a facilitated space there to listen to her pain as she talked about living, existing in and on the margins and sharing the cruel treatment of humanity. She would have been incredibly frightened as a young teenager but somewhere in there, she got the courage, the passion, a vision to see the world in a different way. And that was the antidote to her fear. Yesterday, I spent time in a space with the most amazing women. There was about 25 women, many, many different generations and age groups, different abilities. There was Arab, there was Kurd, there was Sunni Shia Muslim. There was Roman Catholic, and even if you can believe this, there was a Presbyterian. <laughs> we shared a space together. We offered hospitality through food. We laughed, we danced, we did Kurdish dances. We danced Arab beautiful dances that, 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 that they do, and we cried together. But the most powerful thing for me yesterday was in the midst of all of this, we held a space for a Syrian mother to watch her daughter, whom she lost during resettlement from Lebanon, being married. And she cried. She cried from the depth of her heart and she sobbed as she watched somebody else prepare her daughter to be married because that's where she should have been. It wasn't an easy space to be in. It was a difficult space, but it was the most affirming and honouring space for me to be in. I yearn, I yearn for more of those spaces in Northern Ireland. And I suppose this Christmas, we are, 
and, and we will be bearing witness to huge amounts of, of social and economic suffering. Homelessness, as I spoke about, the domestic violence will be on the rise. We know that in the domestic spheres. And my question I'll leave with you tonight is how can we offer new visions? How can we offer those new spaces where communities can be of hope and love? Thank you for listening. Brilliant. Well, we've had everything tonight, haven't we? What a privilege to come to the end of a year together and to be able to take some time out. Someone said to me the other day, Paula said to me, she said, I hate this time of year. We're all meant to be hibernating and everyone's going crazy trying to hit that deadline. And uh, it's good to stop, isn't it, and think every now and then. So this is brilliant. It's my real pleasure to invite Nalani back up again. Um, thank you guys for coming all the way, again, all the way from Ross Trevor. Such a blessing uh, to be with us. And again, a lovely echo from two years ago. We didn't really, we skipped last year, didn't we, for all sorts of reasons. And here we are again together celebrating Christmas um, with Alan. Uh, thank you with Denise as well. We've just had a great, a great night. So thank you, Jill. Thank you guys all for coming. Nalani going to play us out. Please uh, linger, have a drink, put something in the bucket and chat with one another. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs>